In times of strife, the founding of organizations meant to address the dire needs of marginalized queer populations has contributed to our survival. Join me as we discuss how LGBTQ plus focused community health organizations are saving lives. A historical example of queer-led community organizations starts with during the HIV AIDS epidemic. Many organizations arose to fight for improved health care of people living with HIV. The genesis of one queer community-led movement named ACT UP led to widespread economic, social, and political change that affected the state of science and marketing of HIV drugs. Numerous chapters of the famous organization rose in cities, such as Chicago and San Francisco, where members focused on mobilizing protests and civil disobedience in the name of promoting the survival of LGBTQ people. These chapters fought across the United States and the world to challenge the status quo of the treatment of people living with AIDS to ignite compassion and empathy from the other side. In return, prices for drugs such as AZT lowered. Presidents were pushed to acknowledge HIV-AIDS as a problem in the media, and gay men who at the time did not use condoms regularly could learn how to protect themselves. Community-led advocacy creates the best type of change because that change stems from true struggle and understanding of the needs of the community. The existence of organizations like ACT UP historically have been helpful for leading to the elimination of health disparities. Other organizations exist between the local and national level that in some way intervene in the current landscape of disadvantaged access to healthcare or worse health outcomes for LGBTQ people. These include healthcare-specific organizations such as Howard Brown Health in Chicago, Whitman Walker in Washington, D.C., and Fenway Health in Boston, to name a few. In the nonprofit space, groups such as the Human Rights Campaign and the Trevor Project directly and indirectly address healthcare needs of LGBTQ people through reporting, advocacy, and lobbying. You may know of some specific organizations yourself, including an LGBTQ alliance board at your school or a queer healthcare institution in your neighborhood. The truth is, without these organizations, we would not see ourselves with the progress we've made today demanding better treatment. Thus, today's episode centers on giving these organizations, including today's organization, Empower Global Inc., their flowers. Because working as a group, there's strength in numbers. Join me as I talk with our guest, Gregory Williams. Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Equity Podcast. I'm Jalen Brown, and today we have Gregory Williams with us. Born in Miami, Florida, Gregory Williams, also known as Greg or Anton, has overcome many trials throughout his life. Greg grew up in an area popularly known as Liberty City, which is not just crime-ridden, but also one of Miami's undesirable neighborhoods. He used his surroundings as motivation and fuel to stay out of trouble and focus on a better future. After graduating and surviving Miami, Florida, Greg's next obstacle was college. He attended Florida State University, a predominantly white university in Tallahassee, Florida. Greg had to live, breathe, and dream of surviving college because he should have dropped out based on his experiences in statistics. However, he has never let any hurdle that fell onto his path stop him from moving forward. Over the years, Greg has worked as a retail executive for several Fortune 500 organizations, which allowed him to build up a wealth of knowledge in business. Greg specializes in growth strategy and process improvement, which has yielded profitable results. Being in church all of his life, Greg knows the importance of its effect on the lives of others. His commitment and hopes are that his impact is easily seen and felt among the individuals he leads. Greg believes that spiritual leaders are assigned to serve and develop people in their churches and their communities. Doing just that, he has served as a minister, lead minister, elder, 
and executive pastor. Currently, he is the COO of Powerhouse Global Network. Greg believes that spiritual leaders are a bridge between God and people. He works tirelessly to bring his brothers and sisters in Christ closer to a more meaningful relationship with God. And now that has led Greg to appear on today's podcast as we discuss today's topic on how LGBTQ plus focused community health organizations are saving lives. Welcome, Greg. Hey, everybody. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for this amazing opportunity. Um, to not only share about my journey, um, it's so interesting to hear my bio and think about my own journey. Um, and I just hope to serve as a catalyst uh, of inspiration for other people that they can do it and that they can be inspiration to others. So thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Awesome. So obviously you have a huge background and it seems like you, you're bringing a wealth of knowledge to your roles and you're transitioning to being more fully involved in your nonprofit and are going to help more in the efforts related to the organization. What led to your change from being as a consultant for Microsoft to the position that you're soon to have now? Uh, yeah, that's an amazing question. So I'll say it started about two years ago, um, serving as our COO. Um, most of the time, my perspective was included in a lot of our initiatives to kind of like improve it or you know move it more to digital. Um, and then we had an amazing opportunity to partner with uh, some organizations in Chicago in, in planning that. It just was so fulfilling to hear people's response. So I think it was the response of other individuals. And I was like, well, Greg, you do this for profit every single day. You help solve problems. You help fix things. Why not do it at your nonprofit? So I leaned in and it's been extremely fruitful. Um, what I've learned is that collaboration is key. And as vulnerable as I am about this journey, other organizations and people are willing to help um, move it along. And I believe um, there is uh, a reward at the end for the individuals that are impacted. So, yeah. So what I hear is community-centered focus. What I hear is empathy for the people you work with. Um, and I think that really does translate to when we talk about health disparities and how people who are experiencing that in the, in the queer community especially lack that compassion and care uh, that, you know, they deserve. So... What can you tell us about the importance of having discussions with faith leaders that include compassion and care towards LGBTQ plus people? Yes, I think it's uh, it's very important. Um, the reason I am also doing this work is because I understand, particularly in minority communities, how important faith is, right? Um, for many of us, we know that the faith leader was almost like the judge, the president of our community, right? People went to the pastor for advice, spiritual advice, family advice, um, the rearing of children advice. And oftentimes what we say across the pulpit is law in people's household. So it's very important for faith leaders to discuss uh, the impacts uh, both positive and negative to the LGBTQ plus community, but most importantly, leading with compassion. Um, something that I've been seeing more often happen recently is faith leaders of whatever persuasion, particularly of heterosexual uh, uh, background, apologizing for some of their rhetoric that they've said and knowing that it's been connected to stigma, that people have committed suicide um, or people have now resorted to drug use because of some something that they said. Um, and oftentimes it was not biblically based. It was their opinion. It was their feeling um, instead of it being rooted in the doctrine of faith. So I think it's very important 
Um, and I'll add one thing to it is I, uh, Powerhouse Global and Empower Global, we're creating a program called Regeneration for that purpose. We're retraining, we're educating faith leaders on the importance of LGBTQ plus individuals' experiences, but most importantly, how what we say as faith leaders across the pulpit impact them. You mentioned um, Powerhouse Global Network and Empower Global. So can you tell us about that evolution a little bit too, Empower Global? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I will uh, kind of make it simplified. So uh, Powerhouse Global Network is actually our faith organization that was started by Bishop Keith McQueen, um, originally out of Indianapolis, Indiana. He led a church um, in Indianapolis, Indiana for, um, for a decade. Um, and in that point, he was leading two ministries, um, which we now know is the Powerhouse Church of Indianapolis and then the Powerhouse Church of Chicago. Um, from there, he understood the importance of having a safe space for queer identifying or affirming leaders. So that's how the Powerhouse Global Network was formed, um, a space for not only faith leaders and pastors. So we have network pastors, we have campus pastors, but we even have like entrepreneurship and we understood the importance of having community and a network for affirming individuals. And I want to say affirming because everyone in our network is not LGBTQ plus I, I, plus I identifying, but our allies, our parents, our friends, our cousins, our best friends, our neighbors are also a part of our network because they understand the importance of the work that we're doing. Um, as it relates to Empower Global, which was originally called Empower Indie, was started in Indianapolis, Indiana. It was a nonprofit organization. So we focused on feeding individuals um, in our community, clothing them. Um, and as I said, uh, the organization evolved. We got more involved in social justice. We got more involved uh, with laws that was hindering LGBTQ plus I individuals from moving forward. We got involved in HIV prevention, understanding that it is impacting the minority community so great um, and it required our presence. And that's how both organizations evolved. They're two separate entities. Um, I love to, to know, but they work in tandem um, because we understand that the faith is the core, the bedrock of most people believe and the organization Empower Global is the work that we're doing outside of the church. I see. I see that natural evolution. And, you know, one thing that I love is that the, the work started with individuals seeing a need and addressing that directly, whether it was, you know, people being unhoused or people um, not having access to care and, and things like that, or access to food, uh, and how that has evolved now into a global project, as we're going to talk about. There are several chapters of Empower Global, which I think is quite incredible. I think maybe we can get into that conversation a little bit more. From what I have read, Empower Global has incredible origins and does amazing work. Established as a 501c3 organization, the community-led and inspired initiative arose as a collective of assemblies, leaders, social justice initiatives, community engagement organizations, and educational resources designed to support the most marginalized communities. Now, the mission is to bring appropriate empowerment to transgender, gender not conforming, and LGBTQIA plus disenfranchised communities through a multi-tiered approach to accessing resources to comprehensive health and social services. What do you see as the major health and social service the queer population needs right now? Um, that's a great question. Um, I'm going to say it in two ways. Um, I think the major health need or service is something that is intangible, which is actually compassion first. I think one of the biggest things that we're missing is this idea 
of compassion. What compassion does is open up the opportunity of providing a need. But if one is not compassionate, one doesn't understand what that individual or individual or that particular disenfranchised community is dealing with, which then means when it's time to open up resources you want because you're not compassionate about it. Right. So I think that's something that has nothing to do with health or social, but it has to do with the emotion um, and that we got to leave with that. As it relates to health and social services. Uh, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't want to interrupt you, but I mean, that's important to begin with that emotional and that care basis uh, of understanding with the community. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I, I'll say there's a lot of resources out there as it relates to our needs being met as queer individuals. But I see even doing the work that I'm doing that there are non-compassionate individuals that are leading organizations and that are the gatekeepers of resources. And that if you're not leading with compassion, you probably are misappropriating resources or you're not giving it to organizations or individuals who really need it because you really don't understand what's going on. Um, so I think that is very key. Um, very, very key. But to the actual question about the services that we need, I think we need collaborative approaches. I think um, the reason that the Community Wellness Day is in place is because I often feel like as queer people, we have to jump around like um, playing hopscotch to get resources. I have to go over here to get an ID. I have to go over here to get housing. I have to go over here to get food. I have like, why is it not? a package deal. We already identified that this community has been on the outbounds where we have some of the highest homeless rates. We have some of the highest HIV uh, um, uh, rates. Why isn't someone saying, let's stop making them? Because what, what they don't realize is that this jumping around reminds us of our trauma. It reminds us it reminds us of where we came from and oftentimes being ostracized or being thrown around. So I think what we really need to see um, is more collaborative approach, more organizations working together to provide a one-stop shop for our community and we need compassion. I want to ask about the chapters as well, because currently the organization has chapters set up in Boston, Greensboro, Jacksonville, Los Angeles, Chicago, and Indianapolis, right? Cities all across the United States. How do these chapters arise? And does each one focus on health needs that are more specific to their local community? Or is there a larger organizational agenda? Yeah, great question. So I'll start. It goes back to the organizational structure of the two organizations. Um, so when we started our organization, the actual Empower Global Network, um, we brought in faith leaders that were not only there to preach and teach, but also had a connection to community. That's kind of one of the requirements of being a campus pastor. Um, so all of these locations actually have a campus. There's a campus leader there leading that. And we also have Miami, Florida on there as well. Um, so with that, and we're growing, growing, there are so many individuals that want to be a part, but one of the requirements is that they're also connected to some type of community or social justice effort. So when we think about our organization in Miami, um, they have a nonprofit organization connected to them called the Rafa Center, and they do amazing work in the HIV uh, prevention awareness space. Uh, our organization in Boston, they put, uh, they've put on actual balls 
for the Boston community. Um, our Greensboro community, uh, community campus is working with uh, the university community because in Greensboro, there's like two or three universities in their area. Um, our Los Angeles community is working with arts and they're working with the Hispanic community. So every different uh, chapter, chapter, and I don't want to say chapter because we call them campuses, have their own uniqueness, um, but it's the same as the global. So they have the campus aspect, which is the church, a safe space for anyone to come, no matter how they identify. And then the nonprofit organization, which is an umbrella for all, but each different ch campus is doing their own work based on the needs of their particular community. That's fantastic. I love to hear that. I love to hear that the organization is responsive to the needs that arise within those communities, but also that there can be still like an overall nonprofit and overall like basis for the work. And I really loved also that you talked a little bit about HIV prevention. And I kind of want to get into the services as well because of the services provided, mental health counseling, HIV health services, and housing and employment counseling stand out as services that likely provide tangible benefits for LGBTQ plus people who may lack these opportunities due to certain barriers. How does your organization address health disparities, such as high rates of HIV among gay, bisexual, and trans populations, or high suicide rates among queer populations within each of these programs? Yeah, great question. So uh, as a board, we wanted to make sure that we had a brevity of services, and if not services, that we had what I like to call the blue book. <laughs> And the blue book is just like the black book. It's just a list of organizations and people that we can get people help. Most of our services came out of our congregation. Our congregation members will come and say, hey, I tested positive for HIV. And because we create a safe space, we create community. And we also create this open dialogue where our members feel comfortable sharing. Hey, you know, I feel like today is the day that I'm going to take my life. So because of that, and we've not created these barriers for our constituents, our members, our community people, because we, whatever you want to call them, right, parishioners, because we don't create that barrier and we have open dialogue and we make ourselves accessible, we started realizing that, hey, this is a trend. This is happening a lot. Um, we need to do something about it. So that's how most of the services um, came about. But specifically when we're talking about um, outreach, what I found and the reason why we exist is because we we would send resources uh, to our members and they would be like, I didn't get any help. Or I went to this particular organization and they didn't do anything. And it became bothersome for us as a board, my pastor and the, the directors, that this is a problem. Like, why can't it? And what we saw is that there was a connection to their involvement in church because they were homeless or because they were hungry or because they couldn't get, get medicine or because as a, a, a trans experienced individual is now can't get employment because they have the barrier about getting appropriate identification. We saw these happening so often that we was like, we now have to be at the table and we have to now be able to provide those resources for our parishioners so that when they join as a member and they have any particular issues or disparity or what have you, we can immediately connect them to someone that we trust and we know they're going to get them the help or we're going to do it ourselves. 
Um, something else that's not highlighted in here is that we are actually working on our actual on-site facility where people will be able to uh, do services. And I know you have a question later about, um, or you're probably asking me later about what's next. But I want to say that as this is this train is moving, we want to now be the place where people can come to worship and get tested, worship and get prepped, worship um, and get mental health uh, counseling. And this is called a part of this collaborative one-stop shop that I fully believe we can do as a community, that people should not have to do this round robin thing to get help. Like, why can't it be a one-stop shop? for the things that you need. Wow. I really, really appreciate the connection between faith, compassion, and then receive like receiving care in that, in that why can't you have all three? Um, I think you make an excellent point um, earlier about how the church or faith leaders have been really the the like the the paramount you know figure in the community to uh address the needs and for people to come to when they need help and then how your organize what your organization in, is involving is you know having those people do both worship and receive prep worship and you know go ahead and receive counseling i mean those are those are opportunities that you know can be offered together and you're actually making that a reality which is really awesome and i know that you're having a community wellness day so i want to talk about that later in july of 2023 you'll be hosting a community wellness day where the theme will be shifting from surviving to thriving to end the hiv epidemic health screenings such as blood pressure glucose hiv and sti testing will be provided alongside vital education on mental health, substance abuse prevention, healthy eating habits, and diabetes prevention. How do days like this, meant for direct health and wellness outreach to the community, address the health needs of the population in both the short term and the long term? What I want to give is a little snippet about how we got here to this amazing community wellness event. Um, And it's something that you said in your previous statement was around this aspect of the church being the bedrock. Um, I remember reading in books about the civil rights movement and the church being the place for everything. You re- it was a resource hub. It was a safe space. It was a safe house. You went there. And that's what I'm trying to recreate. I'm trying to recreate this aspect of there was a time as uh, black individuals that we could not get things. We were our own doctors. We were our own grocery stores. We were our own counselors therapy. And I think as time evolved and things got better, we disbanded that. But I think that concept has to come back, particularly for the LGBTQ plus I community, um, because it is needed one. But most importantly, I think it is the only way that we're going to heal us. We're going to heal us with us. Um, as it relates to this amazing community wellness event, it started last year um, and we partnered with Howard Brown and we did some monkeypox testing and we had some conversations about uh, the trans community as well as cisgender women and the importance of working together to uh, improve those efforts. Um, we talked about the church impact um, to the LGBT community. And this year I said, I have to do it bigger. I have to do it bigger and I have to not only talk about what I challenge other organizations to do, which is to collaborate, I got to do it myself. So we're bringing so many amazing organizations all in one place to really offer services to individuals. So blood pressure testing, HIV testing, and for people who don't feel like being tested on site, guess what? We got HIV kits for you. Go home, 
and do it. Um, we have some amazing organizations that will mail it to your house. <laughs> but in addition to that, there's the youth component, right? <clears throat> Excuse me. We want to make sure that we're educating youth about pronouns now. Um, I, my personal experience is I try to explain non-gender conforming to a 10-year-old using birds and trees and dogs, things that they relate to um, about the aspect of diversity of person and diversity of identities, right? So we're educating our youth and then we're talking about food. We're talking about the importance of switching diets, uh, uh, portions, migrate, uh, uh, portion moderation and different things of that nature. So we're bringing it all. Um, I will say it will not be perfect. It won't have everything in there. But my goal is as we consistently do these wellness day, it will be a one stop shop for everyone to be able to get what they need. And if not get it that day that they know where to go get it or connect family members and other individuals to those needs. So um, it's going to be an amazing, amazing, amazing event. And we're coming in the community. It's not going to be at a convention center. It's going to be at a local high school, accessible, um, easy for individuals to get on public transportation. And we just want to have some fun. That's amazing. That's amazing. And to clarify, that is for Chicago, right? Yep, that is Chicago. And um, I've had some conversations with our campus pastors about how do we get one in their particular community. Um, and then I'll go back even to the title, um, uh, Shifting from uh, Surviving to Thriving. Um, and one of the things that I believe as we're in this fight, the 2030, uh, right, our government talked about ending uh, the HIV uh, uh, epidemic. I realized that there are some people who are surviving, but that's it. They're just like, all right, I'm taking my medication. But we want get people to start thriving. We want them to live a full, happy life. We want them to get married. We want them to have kids. Um, we want them to travel. We want them to do more, arise from this pit of gloom and finally just shine the way that they are and not left health disparities, food disparities, um, housing disparities prevent them from living a full, happy, thriving life. That's such an important discussion. And what I just thought about is What's interesting is from a medical background, there's been a lot of progress in terms of identifying people who have HIV, getting people treatment, knowing what drugs are available for treatment, and then keeping people undetectable and untransmissible. However, there's a whole social and community uh, epidemic that's still going on, right, with people still being discriminated against or not having the means to access the medications, although they might exist. And for LGBTQ plus people, as we know, that we're more systematically disadvantaged and actually getting resources, which is why important organizations and community wellness days are a great way to intercede. And I think in the long term, maybe if, I don't know if you agree, but maybe in the long term, that is what we need is more of that intervention from partners in the community, from allies, to essentially speak up and advocate for the access and to improve the social and community side of the epidemic so that people can feel more supported and health and wellness we can reach. It's the key. I mean, honestly, it's the key. What came to mind is the old uh, saying, it takes a village to raise a child. But guess what? It takes a village to ensure that everyone is safe. It takes a village to ensure that everyone is well. And it takes a village for people to shift from whatever disparities that they've been in to being well, which means it can't be by themselves. And oftentimes what I hear as a pastor is that people feel alone. I'm by myself. Um, yes, I'm positive. 
And I feel like I have a death sentence. You know, more people, um, I remember in school reading the Scarlet Letter. Um, and I feel like the Scarlet Letter for our community is this big plus on our chest, right? And we wear it around and we get discriminated against, even sometimes in our own community, right? And it's easy to get in depression or have suicide thoughts when you're alone, right? And I think until we bring the light into people's lives and remind them that there's a village there to help them, that there's a community there to give them what they need, then only so we'll move forward. And I think another key element to this is that for some of the people who are going to be impacted, they won't physically be at July 28th Wellness Day, but their mom or their cousin or their friend will say, hey, there's an organization that offers that service for you and they'll bring it to you. And that's the bigger part about the connection. Everyone at the site might not have an HIV disparity or have family members impacted, but to know that there are people that know that there's organizations out there, so be it. And I, and that's the bigger thing. I want to bring awareness to so many amazing organizations that don't have enough time to advertise that they're doing amazing work, right? Like it's, that's the key. It's like they're doing amazing work, but no one knows it except for the few people. So how do we blast and highlight the work that these amazing organizations are doing to help us as a community? Wow. I really, really think that we, you, we have some good things going on here for Empower Global. Yes. And thinking too about how you said, because people might, people listening in right, right now may be an ally, may not be in the community, but may know someone who is and may want to help in some way or uh, at least spread the word. And I think what you're, what you're doing provides that chance for word of mouth, for the message to be spread. And for the people who are queer identifying listening in, there are organizations that exist to intercede in that those barriers that you might feel prevent you from getting the care and prevent you from wanting to go to the doctor or wanting to um, take care of like a chronic health condition that you've been meaning to, but you don't necessarily feel supported in doing so. Um, whether it's financially, emotionally, or any of uh, any of the above. So thank you for giving us all of that information. And for LGBTQ plus people who grew up in households rich with discussions of or adherence to faith and religion, these experiences can sometimes harbor feelings of distrust and exclusion that separate people from their experiences within a church. And I know we've talked about this a bunch, you know, the connection between faith and compassion in the queer community. And I really wanted to ask you, why is it important that your organization also address the root causes of health inequities, like lack of compassion that stem from some minority churches? Yeah, um, I think that's a great question. And the answer to it is we realize that uh, by definition, insanity is doing something over and over, expecting a different result. And we realize it doesn't matter how many times we put a Band-Aid on our community and help them. If we don't get to the root cause, which is often connected to faith and history or family, then it doesn't matter how many times we offer services, they'll get into service, but the mental and the emotional pieces are still not resolved. So in watching organizations over the years provide services, do prevention, and still not move the needle, I, as a faith leader, said the issue is not lack of service. The issue is lack of 
awareness that there are people in my community that still believe that they're going to go to hell. What does that mean mentally? <clears throat> I know individuals because they feel like they're going to go to hell. They're living their best life ever, which their best life is extremely risky, risky uh, sexual behavior, risky drug behavior, because they're saying, hey, my mom and my pastor said I'm going to hell. Why not just live the best life? Why am I going to be sad? Okay, great. I'm positive. So what? Right. And I think I want to take back that autonomy and that control and just say, hey, some of that stuff that was said was baseless, that it, it, it was not correct. It had no merit. And oftentimes in the fast I f- pastor, I feel like I'm rebuilding people back up from an adolescent. Um, I remember uh, a, a therapist talked about oftentimes where our most traumatic experience happened. That's where we stop growing mentally and emotionally. Right. So for a lot of our parishioners, we deal with five year olds or we deal with 10 year olds when that molestation happened or that violation happened. Um, so I think having faith leaders that are aware, that are knowledgeable, the appropriate uh, pronouns that are knowledgeable about HIV one-on-one and how, you know, hugging someone or kissing someone does not cause infection, right? Having that knowledge in your tool belt is a, a step forward to the, the window of compassion, but it's a step forward of understanding what a ostracized, disenfranchised community has been dealing with, right? Um, and really creating sermons and programs and systems that help prevent that that rhetoric and that craziness from coming to people's lives. Wow, that's really incredible. I appreciate that perspective. And as somebody who also is, you know, queer, black, grew up in the church, I mean, it's it's very valuable to know that what purpose exists for the organization speaks to the challenges that a lot of people with a background like me probably have experienced. And so I really appreciate the the emphasis on getting people to their to another version of what you may may they consider their best life, right? I mean, getting them to see another version of living that differs from maybe what they've been told or what they've been indoctrinated with because those sometimes harmful messages can spread um, through faith um, or what one believes is their faith. And that can just prevent them from, from growing as well. Just like those childhood experiences. I mean, maybe their most childhood, their most traumatic childhood experience was involving uh, their faith or worship in some way. So it, you know, it can, it can go both ways, but again, the interventions that, you all put in place to uplift people and say, hey, we can think about this differently is super wonderful. And that's what we're here for. Um, one of the biggest things I uh, I often got recently is how does the community engage the church? Um, and I told them that um, my, my approach, and it's a Greg approach, is first you have to meet a need, um, whether that be feed someone or help them get connected to something. And then after that, understand that's that compassionate piece. And then next, you got to point them towards the future. Oftentimes we see as a community, people just want to meet statistic numbers. We see, um, you know, evaluators come in and just want to see, you know, what do you identify? But there's no one that's really there to say, what am I going to do with this information and how is it going to help me? Because everyone is at the race to get what they trying to get done. 
So I often tell communities, how about I be the bridge? How about you stay the community, I stay the church, and I bring them there? Because oftentimes I've seen the community try to intervene into the faith space and it just doesn't work because a lot oftentimes community members are not fully aware of the trauma that has been inflicted. And what they see is the community invading my space, right? And specifically, I'm talking about the affirming space. So I get organizations that say, hey, I want to talk to your parishioners. And I have to think through, is this going to be healthy or is this going to be harmful? Um, and I think if we have faith leaders that are thinking through that more often, is this going to be helpful or harmful? Then it'll be easy. And even do it with their sermons, right? <clears throat> is this going to be helpful or is this going to be harmful? Right. You know, the, the what and that's something like I uh, I have a really good friend and I call her like I call her the sermon reviewer. Right. I'm like, can you review the sermon and make sure it's inclusive? And I think if we have more of that, like more people thinking through what they're about to say or what they're about to do and how it's going to impact people, we'll be light years from here. We'll be so much better because there's someone that took a thought and made sure that their thought wasn't biased and made sure that their thought wasn't going to ostracize or hurt someone else. Our leadership is really focused on, um, I wouldn't say redefining, but uh, one of the biggest thing is really making sure people understand the two entities. So that's a big marketing approach. And then next year, we're really just going to be focused on undergirding ourselves with more support. So more fundraising events to be able to expand this work, uh, more grant opportunities to get out there. And then I'm hoping to shop our regeneration program out more. So getting it more exposed to institutions, uh, other organizations, and really create a toolkit um, is our bigger focus and just really operationally expanding. Um, I will hope to announce the opening um, of our new community wellness center, which would be uh, testing opportunity, computer labs, different things of that nature, resources for youth. Um, so those are our part of our one, three, five year plan. But in the next year, we're just hoping to be a much more solid organization, hire some more people um, and really just make our presence known um, through whatever other interventions and programs that we can get involved and collaborate more. Like that's the biggest thing. If we don't do another wellness day, which we will, or if we don't do anything else, we want to just collaborate. Hey, how can we help? How can we participate? Can you use our facility? Um, would coming to a church be less, uh, uh, disarm, more disarming, um, for our community than a clinic, right? Because we realize some of that plays in it, right? Um, location plays into how people perceive things. So collaborating with so many organizations, not only in Chicago, but at all of our other campuses and just growing, um, not swelling, but growing with pace. Um, and I hope that my background and process improvement and organizational growth really helps. And our board, we have our CFO and everyone else, um, our director of events, all amazing, amazing people on our boards that are experienced in for-profit which means when they bring it to our nonprofit organization, we have some of the most brilliant brains on our board. Incredible. Yes. Wonderful, wonderful answer. I I think there's going to be such growth that we see, and I'm excited to hopefully visit the you know center when it's done. Uh, brick and mortar center sounds even more incredible. I know that uh, the community where that is located will appreciate it. So without the existence of, nonprofit and community organizations like Empower Global or Powerhouse Global Network, disadvantaged 
LGBTQ plus communities, particularly intersectionally and disadvantaged ones, such as racial ethnic minorities, would only have the systems that they exist in to advocate for the healthcare. You can think of the government, for example. What is your message to LGBTQ plus people who lack the support they need to feel physically and or mentally well, who may benefit from participating in organizations such as yours? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so it's a two-pronged approach where I would uh, approach this. The first would be my messaging to the community. Um, and I often tell them to be patient, right? Um, the same patience and compassion that you desire towards you, push that back out to the community and understanding fully that everyone doesn't get it. I often tell my parishioners, if someone doesn't understand your pronouns or they don't understand you, slow down enough to teach them. It's a teaching opportunity. Um, but I say to the community um, as a whole, um, it, it's going to be hard because we run in a very capitalistic environment, right? But I think if we take that hat off and just see people as people, right? And not as numbers and not as systems, but just see people as people, right? I often see people have more compassion for dogs than they do people. Um, so if people can just see people as people, um, and see people as your family or as your friend, right? Um, it's, it's, it, the Bible talks about it, right? <laughs> um, if we can see people in that regard, think just the other tangible stuff, the resources, the governmental, the policies, right? Um, even when I see people who write bad policies, it's because they just don't see people or they turn a blind eye to a group of people and they feel as though giving this group of people an advantage means I'm going to lose. But there is enough room. There's a wide enough runway for everyone to take off and be great. But oftentimes we only see one lane, which means we've now cut off or removed the other ones instead of saying it's one lane we can all ride. And even in that analogy, if we are all on one runway, just give me time to take off. Me taking off doesn't prevent you from taking off, right? But it, 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 it's, it's just it's the way my brain works in analogy. It's just that, like, oftentimes I say, well, if you take off before me, that means you have a competitive advantage. Okay, so what? But we're both going to take off. But I think that is the lens. Like, first to our community is just saying, be patient, right? Be a little bit more... Uh, compassion and I speak to them. I'm pastoring them and I'm there. The anger is sometimes the, the the first emotional response and frustration and all of that because finally as adults, they can say the things that they want. Um, and I think for us to get connected into uh, healthy clinicians that are going to help us work through that, right? Um, and deal with those emotional barriers that we've bottled up. Um, but then to the actual community and to governments and policymakers and to leaders of organizations, see people as people, not numbers, not uh, geographic locations, but just see people as people. And then what I lead as a pastor, is I said, that could be my mom. That could be my brother. That could be my sister. And it changes. Right. Because we're connected by family, no matter how much. We don't deal with our family or whatever. We're still connected, right? So I think as leaders, if we see people as people, but then most importantly, see people as our brothers and our sisters and our loved ones, we could just make so much uh, headway. And the things we deal with, even in a nonprofit world with the limited resources, we can make some headways. That's powerful. And the analogies I love. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I love the analogies. and. 
yes, seeing people as people, right? Uh, having empathy for, you know, the people around you. And another thing I wanted to ask was for those people who specifically want to join uh, one of some of the efforts that are going on and receive services, how easy is it for them to do so? Is it easier for them to contact their local chapter in some way? Is it easier for them to visit like a community wellness day when those happen? What would you say? Um, I would say the level of ease is based on that person's perspective. So for, um, and I deal with a lot with in terms of generational gaps. So if you're someone that is a millennial and younger, social media might be your perfect way. Um, there's a lot of people behind all of our social media. So we don't have algorithms just yet. Um, and AI technology just yet to respond to people, bots and things. So it's someone live that's going to respond. And the same thing is be patient, right? <laughs> uh, all of us are not full-time ministry and we're not there every day, but be patient. So social media. And then for individuals who don't connect well, you can definitely go to our one of our websites. So uh, www.empowerglobalinc.org, uh, um, and there's contact information, there's forms, and we have so many different things because we realize there's so many expressions. So we have, in addition to our wellness day, we have our habitation conference, which is actually our global leaders conference, like a convocation. Um, we have a gala that's happening in December, which connects to communities. We have balls, as I said, in Boston. Um, it's so many different ways to connect. I tell people to connect at the, the connection in which they are and know that there's multiple connections and whichever one you feel most comfortable with and most ease, that's where you go. But social media, um, emails, website, show up at an event, we're accessible, we're available. And as one of the leaders, I want to keep that. I want to keep us accessible no matter how big we get. There has to be somebody accessible. It might not be me, but it might be someone on my team uh, and, and stay accessible because that's where the connections happen. Yes. Uh, and we'll include those social media uh, links, hopefully, uh, in the bio that people can see um, when they click on the episode. But I definitely wanted to just address that outreach component for people who are really interested in getting involved. I'll be honest. We as leaders don't often get an opportunity to share or we go from the pulpit to the community and back and forth or we're on planes, you know. Um, and when we talked about a global network, my pastor's is doing work in Brazil. We've Last year, we went to Brazil, Brazil, understanding that there are queer identifying individuals there and their governments don't celebrate um, or support them. We went to South Africa, uh, to uh, Cape Town. Um, my bishop has been, we have connections in Singapore. Uh, we have uh, connections in Uganda, individuals who are literally being beheaded or locked away. Um, so we really... Uh, really want to broaden its horizon. Right. Get connected in the way that, you know, the, that person sees best, right? Uh, whether it's the social media the, or the website, like you said. And I didn't know that there was an international component. Um, so maybe what, how you're also going to how to get, even though it is Empower Global, it makes sense. But I only had read the chapters across the United States city. So again, there is a widespread message for anyone listening in about how the important work involving faith and access to services and the queer community can all come together and that people can receive these the, the help that they need uh, by um, getting involved in, again, these organizations that 
help intercede in the health disparities that governments, for example, like you said, Brazil may not provide or in other places where homosexuality might be criminalized, as uh, we know. So very awesome. And one, another thing I like to get into are current events. Braidwood versus Becerra is one of the latest cases in the federal court system designed to limit the freedoms of LGBTQ plus people. The recent ruling cites that employers should be able to exclude coverage of PrEP, a preventive HIV medication, under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. The decision of this case is still being argued in court and has moved up to the appeal circuit. As we await a decision, though, millions of people, particularly men who have sex with men and other populations at high risk of contracting HIV, already struggle with limitations to access to PrEP and may encounter more disrupted access if this case decides in favor of restricting coverage. The current ruling also seeks to limit coverage of PrEP cost-wise by private insurers. So long story short, there seems to be a connection that the recent ruling has been made by a federal court judge regarding that religious employers or employers that are faith-based should be able to exclude coverage of the medication. And I kind of want to ask you just your thoughts on the case. Maybe what reasons can you think of for why a faith-based organization would elect to not cover that for their employees? And it sort of uh, speaks to the work that you've done to counteract that. Uh, so I kind of want to address maybe your thoughts on something like this. Yeah, um, very interesting. So I'm currently in the MBA program and I'm actually in a legal class. Um, so when you, so this is just all interesting. Um, as it relates to the faith space, right, because I understand the political aspect of it, but as it relates to the faith space, I often feel as though people use the rhetoric or the scripture about multiplying as a hindrance for preventive, right? And we're even talking about preventive around um, pregnancy and different things of that nature. Um, but I think we miss the element of prevention is actually connected to God. Like, and, and I'm not saying like, okay, let me clarify, because I know people will take this out of context. I believe that our Lord and Savior wants us to live the best and full life. And I think if there's measures that will help prevent that, why not? What some faith spaces want to say is just don't do it. Not understanding that oftentimes we're doing it out of repetition and out of habit, not because that's just the first thing that I want to do. Here's an example. I know friends who were molested at a young age and they became super active and that is a part of their DNA. And it doesn't matter how much celibacy and all those kind of things, it is just programmed because that part of their identity was infiltrated at such a young age and it was associated with reward. So understanding the psychological component of that, that for some people, sexual behavior and drug use is a part of a, a horrible reward system. And that instead of us dealing with that and keeping prevention, what we're just saying is don't give it prevention. They're out there doing willy-nilly, just do it, you know, whatever. Not understanding that the prevention is oftentimes connected to people who aren't even in the fight. Like cisgender women who don't know that they're having sex with bisexual men, right? 
or vice versa, or just so many different points. But we only see it back to the analogy about the one way. We only see it as one way. Oh, this is going to increase sex. That's not causation. Offering prep doesn't say people are going to increase sex. Oftentimes it's saying the one or two times that I do decide I'm, pr- I'm protected and that I don't have to be weird or these different components. Um, I, I think it's just our brevity and our sight is, is so limited that we only see it as this. And that's kind of how those kind of decisions are, are going. And as I was reading through the case, it was just the... It, it was politic. It was just wrapped up in a bunch of politics. Um, and I think as faith leaders, we have to learn again, see people as people, right? And see it that is, would you want your family members to not have prevention services? Like, would you want them not to be covered? Or do you want more of the community to be infected? I had a friend that says that this is all part of capitalism. And I, I hope that his statement is not true. But it, it kind of makes it almost true that you're doing that because you you don't want to end the epidemic. You do want people to keep being infected. You do want people to still be at risk. Um, and I think as faith leaders, we have to stand, no matter what our political persuasions are, we have to stand for what is right around people. <laughs> and at the end of the day, preventive services are necessary because everybody is not doing it. Some people are really saying, I'm trying to avoid whatever's happened to me. And we don't always control our outcomes. Wow. Wow. Very, very, very interesting. And I want to also say that, you know, in that ruling too, I mean, there was discussion about PrEP specifically as a medication specifically. Other types of services were mentioned in the ruling, but this medication in particular, the ruling says that it should be, there should be optional to be exclude coverage. So we will see what happens with it. And I think the discussion is very interesting from what you said about that there might be rhetoric going around that, you know, people shouldn't be doing having sex anyway, or that, you know, prevention is not the best way to, uh, avoid infection. And, you know, again, those, ty- that, those type of statements can be harmful and lead people to think that they don't deserve, you know, protection or that they don't, they shouldn't emphasize their health and in ways that, you know, put them at higher risk of infection and that place the, place the blaming again on marginalized communities, as I talked about with in another conversation with Dr. Stephen Thrasher. So, you know, I, I, I really appreciate your perspective on that ruling and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens for sure. Okay. So I think that was everything that I had for the conversation and anything else that you want to add. I know you said that you all don't get to talk to uh, the media as much and that you're always going um, from the community back to, you know, ministry back to, you know, other things trying to advocate. And so now I just want to leave the floor to you to um, include anything else. Yeah, um, I think what I would love to end with is an invitation to as many people as possible to just come and see. Um, in my normal work in consulting, um, we do this thing called proof of concept, right? And it means we're not going to fully do it, but we're going to show you a sample of what's going on. And I feel like oftentimes is that if individuals of every background, the media, uh, medical professionals, like I challenge, um, I challenge medical professionals, nurses, doctors. When was the last time you went to a church 
or are you providing services just at your local medical space? Like, have you taken a day off to go see your community that you're serving? Have you asked your patients, where do you worship at? Or where do you hang out at? You know, can I come? Um, I think if everybody get out of their four walls, so if your four walls is a church, get out. If your four walls is your community center, get out. If your four walls is a hospital, get out. If everybody cross-pollinate and really get out of their four walls, I feel as though people will see a different perspective and the proof of concept of what they are doing, good, bad, or indifferent, will either be translated as well, or they'll have to tweak what they're doing because what they're doing is not working. But I would invite anyone to show up at our events. Um, we have our campuses. Um, and feel free to reach out to me at COO at phglobalnetwork.org. That'll be provided. Reach out to me. I can connect you. Um, to ministries <laughs> that are connected to our network. But I would invite you to come to a worship encounter or come to a session or come to a training and just sit and see. Oftentimes as leaders, we always have to be on. We always have to talk. But when's the last time you just sat and I had to talk um, or sat in the back of the room and observe? And those are signs of true leadership being engaged with how what I do or don't do impact people and what am I going to do to improve it? Wow. An important part of leadership involves listening. So like you highlighted, that is something that, yeah, we should be doing. We should be listening to each other more as communities and getting outside of our comfort zone. So thank you for ending with that message. Uh, and I appreciate this entire conversation and thank you so much for being here. It's an honor. Thank you so much for the opportunity and have me back anytime. I am so grateful that Gregory came on and had a chance to deliver that message. As a faith-based leader and a nonprofit executive, his experiences tell us that LGBTQ plus people can exist in both spaces. More leaders from religious communities should be exiting their comfort zones to understand the needs of marginalized queer people. A complexity of trauma has resulted from the intersection of faith and the queer community because of misinformation and harmful rhetoric. Empower Global is actively undoing those injustices that keep the queer community from achieving health equity and becoming well. Furthermore, we need more organizations like Empower Global to continue interceding in the root causes of health disparities that impact the LGBTQ community. From there, we can continue to advocate for empathy towards the health and wellness needs of queer people and end serious issues such as the HIV epidemic, increased mortality risk of trans and gender diverse individuals, and build economic wealth for queer communities and families. Thank you for listening in. If you would like to read more about Empower Global, please visit empowerglobalinc.org slash about. Also, please visit their social media to connect more on Instagram and Facebook. Let's continue to push the conversation more on Instagram at Equity Podcast or on Twitter at Equity Pod. I'm looking forward to seeing you in the next episode. Take care until then.